to the Oros Watch Podcast. I'm your host and producer, Nick Patel, a songwriter, publisher, and music professional. Alongside me have David Lowry and Chris Castle. David Lowry is a platinum-selling songwriter and performer for the bands Cracker and Kemper Van Beethoven. He currently lectures to music business students at the University of Georgia and is an ongoing artist rights activist. Chris Castle is a music lawyer in Austin, Texas, where he represents artists and music tech companies and works on public policy issues for artist rights. So I feel like we talk about mechanical royalties like all the time on this podcast. Uh, the first episode that we actually ever released was about the frozen mechanical crisis with Chris Baton from the Ivers Academy. And then the second series, we also touched on it in multiple episodes because we had discussions about songwriting agreements, recording contracts, um, the basics of music publishing. So we have touched on mechanicals a lot and for the first episode of series three, we're actually going to be talking about it again because uh, of recent developments with the corporate royalty board. And it's actually some good news. It isn't a depressing episode about mechanical royalties. We do seem to have some sort of hedgeway in terms of getting these mechanicals unfrozen. And finally, they will hopefully be risen since 2006 when they were first set. Uh, so today we're actually gonna delve into all of that and I'll give my usual background spiel about the topic. Um, also, just to have a note, this is the first episode of series three. Um, the rest of the episodes for series three aren't quite ready yet to be released. So this is sort of a bit unconventional for release schedules that I tend to try to do um, but just because this is such a time sensitive issue that's at hand that's happening in real time I decided that we needed to push this out uh, as soon as possible and not wait for the other episodes just yet so there will be a little bit of a lag um, if you're turning into this uh, new series more than likely we won't be on a consistent and strict schedule like we are for the other two series. Right, so let's just get straight into the conversation. So, an increase in mechanical royalties for physical goods and downloads are in contention by the copyright board. Now, remember from our previous podcast, mechanical royalties are royalties given to songwriters for the reproduction and distribution of physical configurations such as CDs and vinyls, as well as digital downloads like iTunes, which as I'm sure a lot of you guys know, iTunes is sort of dwindling. And also, so that everyone is on the same page, going forward, the Copyright Rules Award will be abbreviated to CRB. And to give you a definition of what they are from their website, they are a US system of three copyright reality judges who determine the rates and terms for copyright statutory licenses and make determinations on distribution of statutory license royalties collected by the U.S. Copyright Office. So in the United States, mechanical royalties are determined by the CRB and they meet every five years to determine the rate. And the NMPA, the National Music Publishers Association, has been active in lobbying for higher streaming mechanical royalty rates paid by the streaming platforms. However, they do not particularly battle for higher physical mechanical goods. Um, as they deem the physical goods are significantly reduced in consumer sales, I feel the bigger fight is with the digital platforms over the streaming rate. Although note that physical goods are upwards of 20% of songwriter 
revenue. So, yeah. Those songwriting groups have argued for a higher rate, and the CRB agreed in recent times, as in actually this year. And on March 2022, the CRB agreed to unfreeze the 9.1 cent mechanical royalty rate, which would commence a fight for a new rate in the 2023 to 2027 period. Over the past few years, there's been numerous criticisms about the constant rule for freezing the mechanical royalty rate. Um, the royalty rate currently is 9.1 cents, as I said before, which was set back in 2006. Now, frankly, songwriters are making less due to economic inflation, which we all love. So we are about to jump into the main part of the episode, where we actually talk more in depth about this. And we have a guest, Kevin Cassini, who is a lawyer. He will talk to you all about his experience and his background. And we also have Chris back for this episode. I know we were missing him for all of series two, um, but we were lucky enough to, to get him back onto the podcast. Uh, and so it would be me, David Lowry, Chris Castle, and Kevin Cassini in this conversation about the CRB and on freezing the mechanical royalties. So gents, thank you guys so much for coming on. We have a guest, Kevin Cassini, who's not only our first guest for Series 3, but also this is the first episode of Series 3. So we've made it another season, and so thank you to everyone who has listened to Series 1 and Series 2. I hope you enjoy Series 3 just as much. So Kevin, your Twitter bio says that you're just not a lawyer, according to the Wall Street Journal, yeah. but for the listeners who don't yeah. know you, can you please give us a rundown of who you are and your background? Sure. Uh, that was an article that Neil Shaw wrote. I think he wrote it about um, some rapper was having an, uh, an argument with his manager and he quoted a number of lawyers and then he lifted something from Twitter of mine and he said that I was another lawyer, which is true. So that uh-huh. seemed to be a good enough shorthand. Uh, and as David knows, uh, sometimes the less said, the better in the bio. Uh, but for your purposes, uh, yes, I'm an attorney. Uh, I've been practicing um, in this space for uh, about a decade. Uh, before law school, um, I tried my hand at being a pro musician. I went to Berkeley uh, mm. College of Music for undergraduate. Um, I'm a saxophone player by trade. Um, if you are good, then you can get into Berkeley. And if you get better, then you get a job playing with someone or maybe yourself recording contract. And if you're not, they give you a degree and they tell you to find something else to do. And that's exactly what happened to me. <laughs> um, and uh, luckily I did. I had uh, very gracious and very, very talented uh, and accomplished teachers, uh, one of whom said to ask me many times, you're not going to be a performer, right? And I said, I guess not. <laughs> so they said, okay, okay, okay. That's you're always good. encouraging. You're good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very encouraging. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was an amazing place to be, though, just surrounded by that much talent constantly. And in uh, I obviously come from a family that, uh, although they're not musical, they valued the fact that I was and they supported me in making those choices. And, and so um, it being an important part of who a person is, uh, certainly I went to I was lucky enough to go to a, um, a public high school that had a lot of resources for me to continue to learn that Um we had things like theory class and arranging class. Um, 
symphony, um, even at the high school level. So I was pretty well prepared from the theory standpoint. I knew how to do it. I just couldn't quite get my fingers to move as fast as my brain would move. Um, and so, yeah, I, I found myself wanting to stay in and trying to provide value. And for me, that was law school. Um, when you go to law school, you, if you do it like I did, you take on debt and then you have to take jobs to help pay off that debt. So it took a while to get back to it as a big portion of the time that I spend on it. Um, Connecticut, where I practice mostly, does not have a pro bono requirement. I've worked at various places that have recommendations, but there's not a state mandate or a bar mandate requirement. And so it became up to us really what we wanted to do with our advocacy. Um, Chris will tell you if you're in a big firm anywhere in the country, maybe the world, they want you to do a bunch of volunteer work and things like that, but it really is, ma is masquerading uh, for marketing, essentially. Um, they want you to grow your brand as a name and hold yourself out as an expert. Well, I really didn't know much of anything except I had a knack for the idea of, well, first, when you're in any form of IP, it helps to figure out which portion of IP you're talking about and not confuse them, which was not intuitive to other people like it was to me. So I gravitated towards that in law school. And I continued along with trying to help people who um, were trying to protect those rights, um, you know, at, not at a high corporate rights holder level, but more at like a, um, you know, person to person, individual rights holder level. Um, see that there was value for that, um, for them in that, and that if they didn't sign those first deals or didn't agree to certain things, then they may be paying themselves dividends later. Um, and it just kind of grew from there. And then I, I fell in with a good group of people that advocate things directly for the musicians and the writers and the artists, rather than for um, the companies that they are signed to. And that includes Chris. Um, and I just really decided to try to focus in the last, say, two years or so, um, the consulting business that I have on helping those people who are kind of underrepresented traditionally haven't been given the information that they need to be successful or as successful as they could be to try to get them over the hump and realize that if they did a couple of mundane, um, non-sexy admin things, they might find out that there was more of that mailbox money that everybody else is talking about. And then it turns out when the world shuts down and nobody can actually tour, remember all all of the lords who have put themselves in power have told all of us all along that, well, you don't really need this anyway because you make all your money playing live, um, which for some time was true because you can sell merch and things like that. And you know, you'll get a good rake on ticket or you'll get paid flat rate for showing up. And, uh, well, what happens when that goes away? Well, you've got time to focus on the rights and royalties aspect of your admin, but you're going to wish it had already come in. Right. And so that's what we really started doing hard April, May, June of uh, 2020 and have just kind of tried to figure out a way to align the rest of my time spent in getting that word out, in showing people how and why it's important to them to take back more ownership, to educate themselves more as to who does what with your stuff and what you should be getting for them doing so. Uh, and you all know that that takes lots of different forms, depending on style, genre, um, 
unsurprisingly certain demographics of artists and music writers get taken advantage of more often than others. Um, and so I try to break down the information paywall for those people and, and try to try to level playing fields where possible. Um, and that leads me to making comments to CRB and sending notes to my congressmen, uh, congresspersons and senators. Uh, and thankfully, some of the people that I disagree with have invited me in to sit with them and explain to them why I think what they're doing can be done better. Um, and so I continue to take those opportunities, uh, but I'm thankful to be invited here by people that uh, I agree with so we can talk, um, you know, kind of amongst ourselves and then send it out to people. So, um, you know, those conversations end up sometimes getting couched and people curve their rough edges because they want to go along to get along. I get that. Um, sausage making is ugly, I suppose, but sometimes people also need to hear, uh, you know, rough truth. and. Um, I think some things are coming to a head. And so these conversations, I'm very glad to have with sharp people like you who are pulling on the same direction, uh, in the same direction, on the same rope as I am, because it helps me when I go back in those other arenas with people that I disagree with to, uh, you know, make sure I'm bringing my best tools forward. So thanks for having me. Well, sure. No, we're glad, glad to have you. It's, it's a it's great to have other voices out there and stuff. So it's, I didn't know you're a musician. That's a, that's a, that's a cool thing. Well, no, uh, you are a musician. I'm a recovering musician. Okay. Well, <laughs> all of us here on this podcast actually are musicians. I don't know if you know that, but it's not just me. So. Yeah. I think that it provides me a perspective that you know, the other thing I do is I teach adjunct in a law school up here, um, entertainment law, advanced copyrights, and so I spend a lot of my time engaging with professors and academics, you know, tenured folk that write about these things, um, not always from my perspective, often not, um, because we try to read all sides of an issue and try to get a good cross section of materials for the students. But I also like to have them come into my course so that if I disagree with something, the students can hear me disagree with them and they can hear the refutations of my points as well. Um, and I find that almost never are those folks engaged with musicians or writers. Um, they're usually not, and, and they usually don't have any circle where they could spend any time with them. And it's just so strange to me. It would be like, you know, trying to propose legislation for plumbers, but you've never seen a plumber, been a plumber, uh, hired a plumber. You know, you've just read a bunch about what plumbing does and how much it costs upstream and downstream. And like, it's just all theoretical lost in the weeds sometimes. And I wonder why that is, why the voices carry so far and so loudly when they've never spent any time in the industry at all, you know, and not to say that people who have always have the answers. We know plenty of people who have spent their lives in the industry that don't have what we think might be the right answers, but it certainly helps us from a perspective. Don't you think? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. And I, I, I have that issue too. Sometimes go to a conference or something like that. You meet like people who are really generally, you know, pretty nice and pretty intelligent. And it's not so much like that. They don't get the issues. They just sort of focus on the wrong things you know like yeah. the outlier cases and you know 
things like that. So I don't really teach law, but I do teach music publishing, which overlaps with that. And one of the things I try to do is my students invariably will find something somewhere that I regard as something, well, that's a little bit of an outlier. So let's not worry. About it. Let's, let's learn about music publishing that most of us practice all the time, every day, and not right. concentrate on the weird outlier borderline hedge edge cases. Right. right. You know? Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. I mean, it's helpful to understand the theory of things and the policy and the reasons behind the policy. But then if you just step away from it and go back to studying more theory and more policy and you don't pay attention to the working end of what you've lobbied to put into place, then, you know, how are you sure what you're doing is right? Well, maybe it's because it's come from the term sheet that your corporation or your lobby firm or whatever spun up before you even went there. And then you just go back to the drawing board and try it again. And so, you know, yeah, it, it's, sometimes it's even it's just uh, sometimes it's even more fundamental than that. And I'm thinking of uh, the very first Creative Commons licenses that were for um, uh, categories of, of uh, digital files like audio, you know, and you <laughs> and I said, you know, at the time, so audio, so you're going to license audio. And let's say it's my recording of the Beatles, but you're, you know, a Beatles song, but you're going to put that out there in a Creative Commons license. What does that even mean? Right. Yeah. And they looked at me like I had two heads, you know, and, and, and yet there were probably hundreds of thousands of these licenses out there because they didn't fix it for probably two or three years. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and anybody who has even just a, kind of a first year understanding of copyright would know that that was stupid, right? <laughs> but yet because it was Lessig, right? And, and all that he brought with his academic credentials, he got away with it and created, you know, or, you know I guess for everybody's sake, there was no litigation that came out of it, but it was definitely a stupid move. And, um, yet, you know, he got very, you know, he had a real following for a long time on the copyright world and, and not only his students, but academia and we're still suffering with Britain, you know, who was one of his original uh, acolytes now at the American Law Institute leading there statement of copyright project which will be a disaster once it's going but don't let that stop anybody so again i hear what you're saying and it just it's it's just always appalling when these things happen but they keep happening so and we also can't ignore the fact that very often these guys are fulfilling what appears to be at least some other kind of corporate agenda you know uh and we can't ignore the fact that Plus, it got millions of dollars from Google uh, to perpetuate these myths, you know. Uh, so, I hear you. Yeah, there could be a funding motivation. There could be an ideological motivation. Um, sometimes, I think people have lined up on what they think are one side or the other. I don't like to even consider this as sides because there are so many different corners and facets and alleys you could go down in this but i think they identify who they think their allies are and they just stick with it 
and they find it difficult to yeah. disagree with those people as well, you know. And right. if you stay in scholastica and academia, then, well, you know, you know, you, you want to be sure that you can be published, right? That's how you make your mark. You want to be invited to speak, not just to attend. Um, right. And right. if you cut against the grain of the people who have lined up with you in the past, sometimes you can cut off your nose to spite your face. Um, I'm not tenured. I'm not seeking tenure. I don't really care. <laughs> Um, I, I like to disagree with people that I respect. I find that the, the, the conversations or, you know, arguments in a legal sense, um, go better. They get to the point more quickly. And sometimes I find myself, uh, refining my points a little bit better to, to deal with them. Um, I don't enjoy disagreeing openly about policy with people that I don't like, um, because I find that it, it doesn't really end up serving, uh, the purpose, my purpose, typically when I get into that is twofold uh, or maybe one of two, either to learn more about something and get better about it or to correct something that I've seen that I think is wrong. And I'm open to being wrong. I mean, I'm not going to get better as an attorney or as a, an instructor on any of this stuff if I'm not open to being wrong, not just shepherdizing my own thoughts, but like thinking about things in a different way because I've been exposed to a new angle. That's fine. Um, but sometimes it's not a new angle. It's just the same old talking points. I've joked with many of the people who we would think, you know, are on the other side, so to speak, with this, um, uh, do you all just getting a bullet point memo or something like this? Because like in a week, everyone will start saying the same two or three things. Right. And I'm like, <laughs> right. you, you know, it was wrong six years ago. It was wrong six months ago. It's taken a new form. And now you're talking about it again. I, you know, I don't really understand why we're back here but you know i've got twin four and a half year olds i haven't slept in probably 60 months at this point so i'm willing to have it out with people all across the world <laughs> and on the west coast or whatever uh all hours of the night i try to keep it uh to what i know about right so if somebody wants to talk about uh photograph copyright for instance or literary copyright i know much less about that stuff and i one of the problems i think with copyright law or certainly in the way that it's practiced in the courts with the tests that are set up as to how you can prove or uh, prove infringement or, or, or maybe make a, a fair use claim as a defense is that it's one size fits all as far as the courts are concerned, but that's not really how usage works in different medium. And that's not really how infringement gets applied to, to different works either. And so um, I just try to stay in my corner where I can. Thankfully, I've found people that are familiar with the interplay between different media um, that I can reach out to if those things come up. But the people that I end up having conversations with when we're debating or disagreeing or even arguing, um, they don't make distinctions in my experience between music, movie, um, literary, photograph. Uh, they just have a problem with big C copyright in general. Um, and if you can't specifically speak to me about a corner of it that's affecting you negatively, then I'm just going to feel like you're just against it as a whole. And then I'm going to be skeptical, skeptical as to why. And it's like everybody who was telling me all the various ways that a small claims tribunal, be it CCB, um, Case Act, whatever, 
it was proposed in the past, whatever it is now, why it's doomed to fail and a disaster. Um, and it all just comes down to this. I don't think they're interested in there being a lower bar to entry uh, for people who want to get adjudicated on works that they feel like they own properly and have been used without license. And if I have these conversations with these people and they can't talk to me about that, that's kind of when I turn off that conversation. Constitutionality may come up, it may not. If it turns out to be unconstitutional, uh, you know, I'm sure that will be determined. Um, and then don't worry about it. Um, but there are so many, there are so many good things that could come from something like that. And if the cost of litigation in a copyright infringement case, specifically in music, um, is so prohibitive, then why not? Why not give it a shot to see if people can have a a simpler chance of having a simpler decision come out without bankrupting them. I think the answer is because it just opens the door to more actions and they don't want that. What do you think about the, the uh, CRB, Kevin, in terms of what we just went through with the frozen mechanical issue? Um, the, the CRB is complicated. Um, which which is a punt and a throwaway line, but it, it's also, it has the <laughs> virtue of being true. Um, bifurcation of all the different uses probably makes sense still, but conglomeration of all the companies around it make it difficult to parse in that way. Specific to the frozen mechanicals, Chris and I have spoken about this on and off record. Um, I thought that it was just a no-brainer that COLA, cost of living adjustment, was the bare minimum that could be done. And that's what I told my senators, and that's what I told the CRB. And it seems like they agree. A problem that you come from, that comes from, out of that, is that you've got non-major labels, right? Independent labels come in all different sizes. So let's just call them non-major labels. The non-major labels... I think are interested in some type of fairness that allows everyone to exist in this ecosystem for them. And for most of us, that comes from adjusting our streaming rate, not only because that's the lion's share of usage right now, but because you can point to that for almost every aspect of the industry right now, again, speaking specifically to music, but at the CRB level, depending on which usage you're talking about, which we're phono, um, you know, the frozen mechanicals, or we're, you know, we're going to be picking up streaming again, then it pits different parties at odds with one another. And then on the same side in other portions of it. So it can be complicated the politics of it. I, I think that a lot of the, I think a lot of the stickiness in that is due to the fact that there is demonization and lionization of figureheads for all of these bodies. And I wish people would be able to get away from that. I mean, you know that some people who should be in certain places at certain conferences answering questions and giving answers don't show up. Um, 
and it shouldn't just be that easy. Um, but I think sometimes it's, it's kind of like the president versus the Congress, right? It's easy to point at the president because there's only one of them. It's much more difficult to blame Congress as a whole for something. You can hold your own accountable, and that's about it. Maybe that's kind of where we need to get. There's a lot of power that rests at the top. And you and I, well, we all know that there are public deals and private deals. And the private deals have influenced the public deals. And I think now you see at the CRB level, the judges, they issued a notice that surprised me very much so. And we celebrated it. I was, I was cautious. And um, I reminded everyone, first of all, it's not done, right? This is a small step, but we may have had our voices heard. By us, I mean the, the unrepresented, the, the non-major um, writers, um, publishers that felt like they weren't really being heard or, or even asked what they thought about things. And in that notice that the CRB judges released, they could have simply said, no, static rate's not gonna do. And cost of living adjustment is a bare minimum. So go back and try again. And they would have gotten what they just got recently, the, the second submission of settlement that just came back at 12 uh, cents. But they added a couple of other things in there that surprised me. And I, I'm still not sure if it's because those things are now going to be required to be dealt with before a, a proposed settlement will be accepted, or if they're just tipping their hat towards the next time, maybe. Remember, we have to continue to go through these things year after year after year. It's kind of never ending. And the other two things that they mentioned were the vertical integration and um, potential for improper self-dealings. Uh, I think they said something like, you know, the, this court has to satisfy itself that there is enough smoke here for us to look into if there's a fire, something like that. And I hadn't really right. heard them, something like that, right? I hadn't heard them issue. Yeah, I hadn't either. No, I hadn't either. But, but I think it, it's also, <laughs> in thinking about this, it, it's also true that there had never been so, there really hadn't been very many comments at all, if any, uh, in, in some of the prior rate setting proceedings and there certainly hadn't been as many negative comments and of people who were complaining of the vertical integration right and complaining of the side deals um so i think there's there's something to that too is that they i think they felt that they had to react in some way because well, you remember whatever they do, they shouldn't make the situation worse, you know, by bootstrapping the first uh, uh, an insider deal. The first go around of commenting was, please open this or, or letters in there was please open this up for public comment. Um, so if and we were successful in getting it opened and if we had gotten it open, but then it hadn't filled the coffers, so to speak, if the if the mailbox didn't fill up, then, you know, they probably would have thought, all right, well, you know, we gave it a shot and there's nothing there. But in the note, the, in the notice that I'm referencing, they also said, we got a lot of comments, but every single one of them was negative. We didn't get one single comment in favor. And that surprised me right. too. 
not one that the people who wanted it couldn't have come up with one party or one non-party commenter <laughs> to comment. Yeah. Um, the other thing yep. that they said that was interesting that may have longer lasting effects was no longer can you reference an agreement of some kind, bargain for exchange of some kind that's outside of these proceedings, but has informed these proceedings without us getting a look at it, not us being the commenters, but the judges themselves. Right. And I think that probably upset the parties more than anything else. Um, and so I'm curious to see what happens with this new proposal, because the proposal really only addressed the rate. It didn't address those other two points. And the court could still right. say that's all well and good. We'll see if 12 is sufficient. We'll open that for comment. But what of issue two and issue three? You haven't addressed those. Right. That really is new territory, I think, for everybody. So real quickly, I want to take a little bit of a step back before we get into the most recent development that has occurred. And especially for our listeners who aren't necessarily involved in this day to day, uh, just to give them a little bit more of a background. Kevin, you talked about some of the major advocacies that was argued by the songwriter groups that helped the CRB see the need to unfreeze the mechanicals. And so my next bone I'm going to throw out there was or is what was the reaction by the major publishers from the initial ruling I've read an article by Music Set Policy again this is like at the time before the recent developments when this was initially in the works that Universal was taking the lead by possibly proposing a 12 cent for physical 10 cents for digital but overall where did the majors stand with this issue um so they haven't made an official ruling yet but what they did was they rejected the proposal that it stay that it stay uh static um publicly you heard things from the riaa that said like um we're grateful to have more voices heard we think expanding the conversation and getting more people at the table is important um and that was helpful i think right Public-facing, glossed-up PR releases are what they are, but they do still have words, um, words that you can hold people to later. And so I thought that that was helpful. How do they actually feel about it? The RIA is a tricky thing because many people, all the parties would have had us believe that the, the rates that we're concerned here in subpart B, right? So we're still talking about like a smaller subset of all the rights and royalties that are out there. Uh, down, downloads, physical ownership, uh, the mechanicals that are associated with physical ownership, so CDs, uh, vinyl, cassette. The RIAA knew that vinyl was growing and at what a clip it was growing. The publishers were still saying to their members, the major publishers, that they didn't think it was worth fighting for not from an ethical standpoint but literally the money that would go into it wouldn't pay back the invested the investment because it was a, a dying revenue stream the riaa knew for sure that that was not the case because they had the numbers they put out you know they released that um 
that study that shows the vinyl explosion. In fact, it's even since we were having that discussion first, it's gone up significantly even more. So how do they really feel about it? I still think they feel, the majors, that they can afford to absorb it. They don't want to have any more negative PR impact because the biggest fight for them is the same as the one for the publishers. And that's taking on the group that, that is not part of this right now. Remember, the, the one that we've been discussing most recently is just about who would pay, how much would the labels pay to the publishers for the publishing aspects of those physical uh, and downloads. The biggest dog in the fight still needs to come into it again. So I think the labels thought, hey, we, we figured this out. Why are we making this more difficult? Well, it's because people like me are flies in the ointment here making a stink. And now the, the court has listened and said, hold on, you're going to have to do better than 9.1. It's not because of my comment necessarily, right? I mean, the flood of comments certainly helped, but it's also because of the CRB's own track record. You see, cost of living adjustments is low-hanging fruit to ask them to go for. That was kind of a no-brainer to me. I think that the labels. Yeah, and in the uh, in, ahead, in the years prior to in the years prior to uh, when they first set the rate at nine point one, which would have been prior to two thousand six, that period in between nineteen seventy eight and two thousand six, they gradually increased the mechanical rate, um, and in in many of those years, the, the increase was based on the cost of living, so it was not unusual historically you know, for the judges to uh, focus on a cost of living adjustment. That was definitely, there's definitely precedent for that. Um, so it's it, always it good was, to uh, point them back to their own previous decisions, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And there was, uh, I think there, there was some merit to, to just reminding them, you know, on the record that they didn't, they didn't need to bring in experts to determine what the value of the song copyright should be, they, right. they could they could decide on their own motion to give a cost of living adjustment without regard to any kind of valuation argument. Because once they get into a valuation argument, and no one has presented any evidence of, you know, expert uh, opinion and all all the all that they're going through on the streaming side when the services pay the mechanical as opposed to the physical side, when the labels pay the mechanical, uh, if they were to just, you know, decide that um, the value of the song should be X uh, percent higher than, than 9.1, you know, I think there's people who could raise hell about that, right? And that, that so that's, that's kind of a third rail I don't think they need. And uh, it's much easier for them which is what they did in terms of their, their keys um, to adopt the cost of living adjustment. So you have both historical precedent and you don't have the valuation issue. I, I'm just saying, so you, 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 you don't have the valuation issue and you don't, but, but you do have the historical precedent. So it's an easier argument for them. And less easily refuted. Not yeah. that they have to make right. an argument. They are the court themselves. They can do whatever they'd like, but it's let, if it should be appealed, it's less easily overturned. I'll say that. Um, exactly. I, I do exactly. also think it's worth noting that in the, um, in the notice that they issued, 
um, they they said that twelve cents for twenty twenty one would have been right in the avenue uh, in the arena for proper cost of living, you know, inflation adjustment to indexed number. Well, since that time and since that calculation, we've seen, unfortunately, record inflation. And so, again, from an indexing standpoint, purely mathematical, it could be that even 12 is not sufficient. Right. Leaving out anything else in that notice, 2021's figure was 12. Well, guess what? 12 cents from 2021 isn't worth 12 cents as I sit here today. So right. that's another thing to consider. And I bet that you're, you're going to find people uh, who are going to be making that argument if there's a second round of comment. Well, I may be one of them because if we're tying <laughs> things right. only to mathematicals, then we got to use our best information. Um, you know, right. and maybe things get corrected between now and when something happens. I don't know, but um, yeah, you may find that I'm one of them. Not that I'm trying to hold <laughs> things up, but it's worth pointing out. Yeah, and and I, I think it's a fair it's a fair point, and it's also consistent. You know, it's consistent. It, it, yeah, uh, yeah. And so if you're going to do it this way, then do it this way. And I think that the I think the publishers, um, we don't know what the negotiations were, but it, I seriously doubt that the publishers started out where they ended up, right? So they they could very easily have uh, come in higher and uh, just negotiated a settlement at the at the twelve cent number. Because the original, we did a blog post on this uh, on music policy where where we had a person from with knowledge of the universal uh, negotiations say that they were at 12 and 10, uh, 12 cents for uh, CDs and vinyl and 10 cents for downloads, uh, which, you know, you know, didn't end up being the deal, but um, that leads me to think that the publishers probably came in higher. And if they were going to follow the judge's theory and they did come in higher, then um, that was probably for this reason that that the uh, inflation, if you adjusted it, and really if you adjusted it through the end of 2023, so you'd have to project uh, somehow yeah. there's ways you could do it, uh, not only the inflation for this year, but the inflation anticipated for next year too. Well, if you're going to have legal analysts pretend to be economists, they can pretend to be good economists, right? <laughs> Might as well. Right. But David, what's your take on this whole thing? Well, I mean, just in general, overall, just because when I walked to the university, I, I walked by the Wuxtry record shop, usually drop in there once or twice a week. And, you know, one of the things I noticed was the price of vinyl, <laughs> you know, since 2000 and six or so vinyl's got to be up like 50 percent maybe even a hundred percent now because in the last um month i mean the price on vinyl reissues and stuff like that has gone up even more like i think i think in that filings or some note somewhere i saw 
I think uh, maybe it was in RIAA notes or in MPA notes that vinyl was $27 was the average price for vinyl in a shop. Um, when in actuality, um, my uh, anecdotal evidence seems to indicate it's more like $35. So, um, I mean, if, if that's the, if the price of the good has gone that up that much, uh, not just because of inflation, but just because of demand and there's just, you know, people are making nice packages and stuff like that now too, uh, you know, we definitely need to um, raise you know, the mechanical royalty rate. I will say though, the thing that really made me, you know, just <clears throat> essentially get radicalized by this was um, I advise an estate and they had a really high end, their label, the estates, uh, the label, um, that manages, you know, that has the contract for most of the estate's recordings. They put out a really high-end box set on vinyl. I think it was seven discs. I think it retailed for over $250, right? But because of the controlled composition clause and the frozen mechanical, um, I was... <laughs> It's like I, I know the, there were ex, a lot of expenses associated with this and everything like that, but the the, the gross on this was was over uh, a quarter of a million dollars, right, uh, on this box set, and what came back to the estate was less. I, I mean, less than two thousand dollars. This out of whack, you know, like so out of whack. Right. Which is one reason why when you hear the, the publishers say that, uh, well, you know, mechan mechanicals on physical and downloads is not a significant revenue stream for us. It's like, well, yeah, it's 15% or so for the label side, 5% for you. Do you think it might possibly have something to do with the fact that you froze the rate for the last 15 years. You know, could that maybe have be a contributing factor? You know? Once again, you are injecting basic logic into this where it doesn't, <laughs> it has no place. It, it is, you've had it frozen for however many years it's been frozen and for, you know, for a hundred before that at, at some joke rate, and you're saying it's dwindling, we can't make any money on it. Well, yeah, we're trying to help you with that. Um, I think the yeah, cost right. of producing vinyl is expensive right now too. And you, I know people who are trying to do it who can't really get access to the materials either. But that $27 a, um, a release for retail, I think they're only talking about new. And there's such a burgeoned, exploded secondary market for collectors vinyl that you know that doesn't necessarily get into new dollars on mechanical rates and things like that but just when we're talking about just the value of music to somebody that's willing to buy it right all of this is kind of a legal farce that we've agreed to accept buying a willing buyer willing seller as sort of estimated through um, you know, advocates that are against one another, antagonists 
that are weighing in as amicus, so to speak, and then judges will decide what really is a willing buyer, willing seller. It's, you know, it's kind of goofy. But you, David, when you walk through town and you stop in that record store, well, that's willing buyer, willing seller right there. They're, they're putting money that they earned hard that isn't worth what it was a year ago into something that they want to own because it means something to them. Now, everybody's got their own reasons. Somebody might have a real high-end hi-fi system at home and they want to play it loud as hell. You know, and if it's a jazz album, you want to hear the whole room. You want to hear the hisses and the cracks. You don't want it really polished, right? Other people love the album, the cover art, and they want to flip it over and they want to get all those liner notes and everything like that. That now is just not as cool to go through when you can, you know, Jaxta is great. And, you know, the, the places that are providing credits to everybody are great, but it's not the same, you know? And so there is still value in that. And so if even if that's what drives the sales, you should tie a new rate to it, certainly, because it's the market itself has demonstrated not a fake willing buyer, willing seller market, but a real market has demonstrated that there is an appetite for this and it's growing. And the rising cost doesn't seem to keep it down. Yeah. Well, and nobody wants to hear this, but you, my take on the willing buyer, willing seller, and you know the lack of an actual market for mechanical royalties, right? Is I think if you you know the what an, what I think a, an economist would really say is go ahead, set the mechanical rate, you know, just err on the high side and let people negotiate it downward, because that's what a controlled composition clause is. That's what record labels do all the time anyway, and that would get you closer to a willing seller, willing buyer market than anything else, right? Not every, not every song would have the same price. Not every artist would get the same deal, you know, on that, in that situation. But that would, that would be actually a market. And nobody wants to hear that though, I know that. <laughs> no, no, nobody wants to do that. It's too risky and they like the bad system that's predictable. And I understand why. But if you do that, then you've really got to take it far and strip down a lot of these things that are making up for what should just be a regular bargain for exchange or point of sale or whatever it may be, you know, and it's not just on vinyl and it's not just on streaming either. I mean, it goes as far as ticket sales and things like that. I mean, there are so many aspects of the way people spend their money to consume music that have so many intermediaries and so many other factors that drive up or keep down costs or, or revenues, depending on what side of it you're on, that it's tough to go back to something that's completely pure. But I, I think you're right. In some corners of this world, it exists, but people don't really want to talk about it too much. And they certainly don't want to hear it from the likes of you. <laughs> <laughs> well, Chris, actually, since we were talking about packaging and cost drivers, Chris, in your article with Music Tech Policy, when you're talking about Universal's idea of having physicals at 12 cents and digitals at 10 cents, it got me thinking about kind of why we would have two separate mechanical royalty rates. And so what are those, what were those arguments? Like, was it purely a cost of goods argument? Is that why they thought to split the mechanical royalties between the physical and the digital configurations? No. Now, the, the argument for having a lower digital rate, which they eventually acquiesced in uh, to keep them the same, was that the 
wholesale price for downloads is effectively set by the uh, digital services, right? Uh, it's different than physical. The, 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 price, the wholesale price for physical is set by the labels. The wholesale price for digital is effectively set by the uh, digital retailers like iTunes, for example. And the problem that you have there is they have absolutely zero incentive uh, to increase their retail prices, thereby increasing their wholesale prices. I mean, they'll 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 sell, you know, you know, higher end audio or you know some value added, uh, at least perceived value added uh, feature on on the recordings uh, to justify a higher price. But they won't just increase the price, and the price has been seventy cents since like two thousand three, <laughs> right? <clears throat> uh, for the most part. So that's the reason why the labels don't want to uh, wanted to have a lower a lower price on the on the download side was that they don't have the ability to pass it on to the consumer. Gotcha. Okay. And so I think it's time to really kind of delve into the most recent development as of recording this podcast. Um, on May 5th, the songwriter, music publisher, and record label groups have reached an agreement. They have penned an agreement to set the mechanical royalty rate at $0.12. Cents. And then this is, settlement is set to be presented to the CRB. Kevin, what are some of your kind of like deep thoughts about this? Um, just kind of throwing a bow out there for the conversation to kind of continue to flow. Do you think it will be approved? Uh, is this a fair rate, or do you think this should be higher for inflation? I know you mentioned earlier that in 2021, if you accounted for cola, it would already be 12 cents. So perhaps it's not, you know, for the right one. But do I expect it will be approved? So um, I laid out reasons that perhaps it won't be. Do I expect it will be? Um, <clears throat> I'm hopeful. I, I think 12 is fine because um, there are other things to get to. This is not a, a big tribunal that has a lot of people working for it that can take on lots and lots and lots of things. Clean this off the plate and move forward so we can coalesce and start talking about you know, the biggest fight that we're all looking forward to having fights, a bad word, the, the biggest discussion, um, legal argument that we're looking forward to having. Do I think? Yes, I do. Um, but like I said, subpart B of phono records for, I'm happy to pop a bottle of champagne and celebrate the fact that we sort of got a voice at the table, but you've got to remember if we didn't have a party, you know, if George wasn't a party to this action, it could have been that they read all of our comments and said, that's very nice. Thank you so much for participating in your government and then done whatever. And you can't count on that every single time. There isn't always going to be someone like him who's willing to do this. And so why don't we, why don't we talk a little bit about who he is? Yeah, for sure. People Go who ahead. Don't know. Please do. Well, I, I, you know, either one, but um, George Johnson is a is a songwriter who is um, in the uh, who's actually a participant in the 
CRB uh, or many, like three and four, and I think maybe two also, um, and uh, has been a pretty active litigant representing himself. He's not a lawyer, but he's actually gotten pretty good <laughs> over the years. And uh, because of the weird way that the CRB rules are written, um, if you don't have a participant who objects to a settlement, uh, it's kind of jump ball as to what has to happen at that point. And the labels, I think, um, would have made a big deal out of that if there were no participant who objected, uh, just because of a quirk in the way the rules are written. It really probably shouldn't be that way. Uh, and at this point, it's important to recognize that the CRB, even though we refer to them as, as uh, judges, the copyright royalty judges, they are not members of the judicial branch, and they are not what most people mean when they say judges. Uh, they're administrative law judges, and by virtue of being administrative law judges, they are also subject to um, the Administrative Procedures Act, which uh, is sort of the constitution for all uh, administrative agencies. And one of the rules in the Administrative Procedures Act is that, that these agencies have to put out uh, any potential rulemaking for public comment. Uh, the idea being that people who have to actually live under the rule will potentially have something uh, worthwhile to say about uh, any any rule that affects them and thereby making the whole process at least theoretically better. At least that's the kind of good government poli-sci 101 you know, explanation for what is supposed to happen. Uh, so consequently, um, if you didn't have George because of the way that the rules are written in the other body of law that governs the CRB, which is the Copyright Act, <clears throat> Title VIII predominantly of the Copyright Act, then you, you may or may not, depending on how seriously the judges take their role under the Administrative Procedures Act, to take into account public comments, uh, you may or may not have had uh, any forward progress on uh, on these rates. So that's why we say George is an important player in this, and and, uh, and he certainly takes his role very seriously. Yeah, and he's been doing it for a long time, as you said. And I think what happened recently was celebrated as widely as it was, not because it makes lifestyle changes for songwriters on revenues you're going to get but because it represented what he's been after for a long time having worked at least a little bit when you say you asked me earlier how do labels feel about it i think you probably meant major labels um and when we talk about what publishers feel about it, we're typically talking about published major publishers um i think there's an opportunity now as we operating under how the crb ALJs, administrative law judges, have set out what they expect to be allowable for comment and things like that. Now, I think you're going to be able to get non-major labels and non-major publishers to have their voices heard in a way that hasn't been before. When this system was set up, you didn't have such consolidation, right? Vertical integration is one. Two, They've got two divisions, two, head, two sides of the same coin that own the publishing on one side and the masters on the other. 
and when you're talking about the biggest, the big three, whatever. So when we say how do labels feel, how do publishers react, let's just be clear. When I say that, at least, I'm typically talking about the majors. And I'm confident, if I'm confident in anything, it's that going forward, there will be space for non-majors to voice their concerns because it's not always consistent with either what the RIAA or the NMPA puts out there as representative of all voices or with the other big dogs that play in that arena. I think the same can be said for DEMA too. I know we're not talking about streaming necessarily, but all the members of DEMA are not cut from the same cloth. There are two specifically, you know, that are, you know, intergalactic conglomerates that could care or not about music. I mean, music was a great way to sell iPods. They just discontinued iPods, Apple did. Um, they've got Apple Music. They got rid of iTunes. Music for them is a way to get people to need their devices. What they sell as devices. Music for Amazon is a way to get users data and to have their, again, they sell devices too, but what they really love is your traffic. They want to know your tastes and your interests. Those two alone could change the paradigm entirely if they wanted to. They have no motivation. One of them is trying to go to the damn moon all the time. So even members of DEMA are not really all the same, right? There are much smaller streamers in there. Um, and then, you know, you've YouTube, Google, whatever. Again, music is whatever it is, and it could be nothing for them. The big difference is there's Spotify. And yes, they've got more audio content that isn't music. They're getting into more and more. They may find that they have a problem with audiobook, you know, uploads and things like that that are not licensed, but that's for another podcast, I suppose. But they can't afford for this to be a loss leader. They're not selling other stuff. They're not delivering Whole Foods to my house. They don't own the Washington Post. They're not selling me the laptop that I'm broadcasting on right now. And so that's where the biggest fight comes. So when we talk about how streamers feel and how labels feel and how publishers feel, we got to make sure we make a distinction between you know, the majors and the non-majors, because it's not always the same. And then as you get lower uh, away from the majors and lower towards the bottom, or maybe in, you know, the fat part of the bell curve in the middle, you find that the publishers that are there are fighting the same fight that the songwriters want fought. And they're not trading horses and they're not willing to make secret deals or have secret deals made on their behalf in order to better their chances elsewhere. They want to deal with each thing in a natural way as it comes up and in a way that makes sense, that lets them feel like they're being heard, that they're being valued properly, and that someone else isn't making tons and tons of money off of their work. None of this happens if someone doesn't write a song, right? No, we're not on this call. None of the people that were at the conference that I just went to would be there at all. Music biz in Nashville. It was a great time, but we need to recognize that without people writing music and performing it, there's no reason for any of it. And so you look through the strata of how many different members there are in these trade associations, and you wonder, are you all really as aligned as it sounds? I don't know. I don't, I don't know the answer to that. I'm, I'm interested to find out. Um, well, and there's a fundamental question there, too, which is that are trade associations really the entities that you want to have negotiating your rates? You know, 
I mean, when you when one of the funny parts about about the CRB unintentionally funny parts about the CRB opinions is that they refer to both the National Music Publishers Association and the National Songwriters Association International as copyright owners. They don't own copyrights. <laughs> you know, neither one of those organizations own any copyrights. They have no licenses. They have signed no writers and they don't pay royalties. Yet they are the ones that are negotiating these deals. And I, I really question whether that's something that should continue. You know, I mean, I, I think that when you've had the most forward progress with this has been when you had people like Abby North and Roseanne Cash and, and, and you and David and Helen and, and Blake and, and, you know, commenting on this, who are people who are actually, you know, on the front lines or are the actual creators, right? That's a new thing. <laughs> you know, that strangely enough, that's a new thing that that had never happened before. But I remember you, you always had either some sort of songwriter group who may or may not have bona fides or you had, um, you know, the trade associations in there, you know, fighting with each other, you know, about this. And I just think that's wrong headed. All of it is wrong headed. I don't know if you agree, but um, and David, you know, chime in, you know, but I, I, I don't. I personally think that should change. Those guys should not be the ones. I think that's how we got to have 38 lawyers, you know, billing it probably God knows how much money an hour, you know, in, in, in this kind, to try to figure out the value of the song. I mean, that's just nuts, you know, but that's how trade associations and, and too many lawyers, you know, end up uh, getting us into this situation. David, did you have a comment that you wanted to make? Well, I mean, I think we've discussed this sort of on the side a number of us. I don't remember who brought it up. I think it might have been Chris. Um, I'm not really sure. But there was this notion that perhaps there should almost be like a, you know, a, you know, if we're going to have a system like this, there should be like a songwriter like ombudsman or something like that, or a, maybe that's not the right word, or a, yeah, you know, just, just somebody yeah, that's independent. Yeah. yeah, somebody's appointed to represent us, you know, like like agreed upon solicitor uh, general or something. Yes, right. exactly. Yeah, like exactly. A yeah. You guys would know the term for it better than I would or how it would work legally. Um because it is so expensive and it because it is so complex and because it's apparent that it's been very difficult for actual rights holders other than the largest ones to participate in these hearings and it just would make everything a little less of a mockery <laughs> i don't know if it's a mockery but you, you know what i mean it's like it's yeah, crazy because right. exactly because exactly what you said that you know we won't always have a george johnson there you know doing yeoman's work for everybody right that was all I was going to say. Yeah, well, that's exactly, I think that's exactly right. And it's, and it's along the lines of getting the trade associations out of there, right? So at least that way you'd have somebody whose job it was, you know, to, to make sure that they, uh, you know, had some sense of what the songwriters wanted. I mean, we, we put out this survey, right? I've never seen a survey from anybody 
about what what the you know from these organizations that are supposedly membership organizations i don't think they they even told their members uh that they'd had a board vote you know to to go one way or another on these issues right so i, I, I just don't that, think they do it the crb notice this is my opinion um the crb notice made reference to the fact that there was question as to whether or not the nsai had properly had this uh, position, this proposed settlement, properly vetted with their membership, and so that's an issue. Right. Re- that's re- right. Yeah. Real that's representation right. versus we have members. You know, they pay dues, and so we speak on their behalf. Well, what does it mean to appoint someone to represent you? Is that just a blanket? Go take care of all the business that there is to take care of. Are you obligated to touch base with those people? I mean, as an attorney, I have to bring each and every proposal for my client's claims uh, to that client and get weigh in. And I've got to sit them down. I'm obligated to walk them through what the options are each time one of those comes in. And I know that this isn't quite that same thing, but it ends up having some feel like that. And I think you see a bit of that in what the judges um, put in their notice. Again, this isn't this isn't how I feel about things. This is how I'm reading what the notice came as. Um, and so, yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe maybe it's not the system itself that needs changing as much as the participants or the number of participants or maybe the specific participants in the system. Yeah, yeah. I mean, David, how would you feel about that if you if you had? If there was someone there who um, was supposed to take the songwriter's position, regardless of who else, you know, I'm not saying that NSAI couldn't participate, but just they couldn't be the only ones participating, purporting to represent songwriters or publisher. I mean, you know, you could say the same for independent publishers, really, too. Yeah, I mean, I just you get to you guys got to the heart of it with the fact that it's like who who actually has uh, rights here? Who actually does you know own copyrights here? You know, it's like if you know it would look like it really was essentially George Johnson who was in the hearing. Um, so so yeah, so somehow this has to be fixed, but but. And, and that that would be something I I would I would certainly support only because it, I you know I'm sure there's things that could go wrong with it but it can't be worse than it is now, right? <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> well, actually, I believe the first line of one of the first line of the second chapter of the book Satri is something about like it can all basically it can always get worse. Um, uh, anyway, <laughs> we're just. Yeah, well, it would be it, to me that would be a um, a step in the right direction. And they've actually got you know the the CRB uh, just hired, uh, to my knowledge, their first economist. Yeah, I think right? so. Yeah. And and even if you had their economist do an independent economic impact report on that first settlement, I mean, you know, a lot of this kind of thing could have come out from that and they they could have done a survey or they could have done you know some kind of inquiry 
directly with the people involved, you know? I mean, that, that would be something too. I mean, even if nobody wanted to pay for um, a songwriter advocate, they, they're already paying for an economist. So, you know, let that person do this kind of work. And uh, maybe that's, uh, I mean, Congress has to do something like that with the congressional, with the C, you know, the CBO score. Maybe, maybe we could ask them to do that with their economists, you know, same kind of thing, which would be better than nothing. <laughs> you know, it would be better than relying on a membership organization who probably yeah. has no authority directly from any of its members to negotiate on their behalf and close deals that actually reduces their income. Well, all, you know? also when it made more sense, or at least when people were paying less attention, perhaps you didn't have such consolidation. Right. Exactly. You had different yeah, voices. That's a very important point. Mm-hmm. And so those different voices were allowed to disagree and they were all heard. Now you've got such consolidation that it's just a couple of voices. And so a lot of times everyone talks about how many copyrights they have under control and that they represent. I don't know if that's the best metric to use anymore um, because it becomes, there's a huge separation between the haves and the have nots. 12%, uh, 12 cents, 9.1 cent, even 15 cent on physical is going to do nothing to major labels. Look at the profits that they've made, right? That's not revenues, that's profits. But some of the smaller ones are going to feel it in a much, much more profound way. I take it very seriously that, that I said you've, you've got to have more voices uh, in this discussion. And I, and I mean that not just from a writer's standpoint and a small independent publisher standpoint but i mean anybody who isn't just this consolidated top because when you talk about the the major publishers and the major labels and spotify i know less to an extent now than there was but at one point there were a lot of people saying things from different sides quote unquote different sides but they were all the same corporate conglomerate or were one of a few and so giving an opportunity opportunity for smaller mid-range labels and smaller mid-range publishers to do more direct advocacy on behalf of their members may end up giving their members a turn in doing better by their artists and by their writers. And that's really, I mean, that that's how I, I'm considering feeding this ecosystem to create more music. I mean, when you look what happened in March, 2020, the first thing that everyone did was start consuming free live shows on their computer. How was that possible? Well, you and I know that the licensing wasn't necessarily always in place because you and I had conversations about trying to figure out if we were supposed to get that done and how could we? And Abby and I did too. But the artists and the writers, they flip open their laptop and they just start doing something because that's what they do. They create stuff that helps us feel better or, or, or worse if we need to, you know what I mean? But it helps us feel something. And I think it's time now for that to be reflected in the rules that get made that affect them. Let's turn to them again now and say, we respect what you put into this. And we respect the fact that you create this entire marketplace from its inception. So what do you think about this? Are you, as, as 
as the poll that we crafted said. Are you aware that this is how it gets done and that it's happening now? So many and I think the RAA is open to that. I, I, I tell you, yeah. I, you know, from, from everything too. I've seen, I think they're open to it because at the end of the day, you know, I, I don't think anybody was expecting this result, you know, uh, but if they're the only labels in there and, and there's a result that, that doesn't work uh, as well for indies who are not really part of their group, but, you know, are affected by what they do, you know, they need to keep peace in the valley too and um they're gonna they're they're, i'm sure they'll be open to it labels have traditionally worn the black hat and the publishers have been allowed to wear the white hat or the gray hat right publishers have enjoyed a better reputation in the history of uh, of uh how the industry is set up now with the two streams this could be a chance for them to take back some public opinion market share yep um absolutely lobbyists are going to do what they do they're all very charming and funny and tall and have great handshakes but like i said even press releases have words in them that you can hold people to and so i'm looking forward to having those conversations and holding people to that and expanding the table more you know away from subpart b of phono four in a way that sets the table for these other things that are coming up that are much bigger and that could be much more impactful for everyone involved. I think a lot with your help, Chris, specifically, we're all more educated on how these things work, the inner workings of them, and how they're informed by things they've done in the past. And with that information, I said at the beginning, I'm trying to break down the info paywall. And you've been a lot of part of a big part of that for me with the information that we have now that maybe we didn't, we can start to shove, well, maybe not shove people out, but set a bigger table. Because although it sounds like there are many voices still that are party to this action, if you look, it's really a very, it's a very conglomerated set of parties. And I think that's sort of what has come out of this, to tell you the truth, is that everybody's looking around realizing that we should have done this differently, right? And and we should have talked to each other and not gotten into a situation where these guys are trying to do the same old thing that they've done before. And I think it's worth mentioning as we as we close up here that one of the problems with the first settlement, uh, and not to launch onto a whole new topic, but but one of the problems with the first settlement was that in addition to extending the frozen rate, the reason they were extending the frozen rate was because there was a settlement uh, between the um, labels and the publishers, which by definition has to be the major labels, uh, to pay a what will probably end up being a pretty good size amount of money, like maybe hundreds of millions, because uh, that's what they have been in the past as a what they call the late fee settlement. Because under the Copyright Act, there's a late fee. If you don't, uh, you know, pay in compliance uh, with the um, statutory license, which is basically monthly accounting, so um, you get a point and a half, which is like credit card interest uh, for late fees. Well, late fees are not royalties, right? So when you have the labels uh, paying out a settlement on late fees 
to predominantly their music publishing affiliates that the affiliates can choose whether they're going to sell or share with their songwriters because it's not really royalties it's 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 a catalog type payment uh you know that's really kind of a right pocket left pocket you know transaction largely and the, if you they were they were finally finally broke down and and disclosed the terms of this deal they call it the MOU and this is the fourth time they've done it and the terms of that deal were basically they had to submit um, em- emphasis on submit, not have adopted or, or passed in the law, but submit a proposal uh, for a late fee settlement connected to an extension of the uh, 9.1 cent rate. So that was additional consideration that was paid to the publishers by the labels in return for a 9.1 cent rate being extended for yet another five years. But when you look back at the prior MOUs, one, two, three, and four, uh, one, two, and three, in order to participate in that settlement money and claim a share of that settlement money, you had to be a member of the MMPA, <laughs> right? So what they what they were saying was, well, we're going to have this settlement tied to an extension of the late fee. Uh, on, uh, you know, or excuse me, an extension of the frozen or extension of the, you know, 9.1 cent rate. And and we're going to pay out all this money because then we'll get the benefit of the lower rate uh, over time. But we're only going to pay the money to people who are members of the NMPA. And the biggest members of the NMPA, who therefore get the biggest chunk of that, of that late fee settlement, I would assume, are the major publishers. So, you know, that is definitely the definition of right pocket, left pocket. And the judges, one of the other things they said in that notice was that they weren't going, they they didn't think it was appropriate for side deals, which I don't think they used the word side deals, but this was essentially what they were talking about, uh, that everybody didn't participate in, particularly when they weren't disclosed, which I think you touched on before, Kevin. So, you know, that's that's what this was also all about. And that definitely does not involve independent publishers, right? Unless they also happen to be members of the NMPA. So that's that's another reason why I think, you know, I, I, I seriously doubt that after being rejected like that, they'll ever do this again. Uh, because the second settlement didn't say anything. <laughs> about, yeah, that that makes a good upshot from that. And when, when I was speaking with some other people, um, about it when it first came out, like I said earlier, I was cautioning people about, you know, high-fiving yourself or popping a bottle too much because that was definitely brought up very pointedly and has not been addressed. And so, Nick, you asked earlier, do I think it will be accepted? Uh, I don't know. And if it's not, I won't be surprised. I'll say that because typically when a judge tells you what's wrong with the proposals that you made and gives you three things that need to be addressed in your revision and you address one of them, uh, it doesn't go well. Now, administrative law is a little bit different and the history of this body is different too. As you said, this is probably the most volume of comments that they've gotten before. And so opening up for comments again, 
you know, may give them even more things to think about. I don't know where they're going to go with that. Um, I plan to find out on Monday from, uh, from someone who knows better than me. But I think at the very least, you're right. Like I said, most of this I've been involved in, in an effort to make it look better in the future going forward. And in the future going forward, it may be they say, look, we can't even get into that because if we try it again, they're going to, they're going to make us run that through for approval too, or something like that. And that's nowhere that any of those parties want to be the right hand, left hand uh, deal making, as you put it, um, will not survive scrutiny. I don't think even at the ALJ level. Right. Right. Which is good. Yeah. In that notice, they said, whatever the quote was regarding smoke and fire, that the court had to be satisfied that there was no fire. They said that no parties have given us any evidence that there is self-dealing specific to this and that it's informed, that it's informed the proposal. Which is to say, right. if you can get us some, we may think differently about this. You know what I mean? That's how I read it. They're, they're, they're telling you what they need to make that a bigger part of what they do. And so, you know, I, I think if somebody who is an attorney in one of those parties to, to that agreement reads it the same way I do, that person will put her or his hand up in a meeting and say, I don't think you want to get into this again because someone's going to find it somewhere. And then they, then the court will have that evidence to the extent that it exists. I, I, I haven't seen anything. I don't know that it exists, but I'm just reading the tea leaves between what the, the judges didn't say in there. Yeah, there were a lot of things they didn't like. <laughs> that's that's for sure. Yeah, and, you know, and and it and it's a bit kind of like the shadows on the wall of the cave. It's like you you know there's something causing it, but you don't know exactly what it is. And uh, you know, the question I would have too, and I think you sort of alluded to this, is you know, we may be satisfied, <laughs> yeah, but they may not be satisfied. You know, because they're and, and I have to say that going forward on this, remember, when this is done, you know, on the on the subpart B side, the labels are done. They go home. Yeah, yeah they're but, out of it. But again. publishers have to stick around. <laughs> right? They will. And I don't think they've helped their credibility much with this this whole process. Well, until they have to come back again for the next round. Right. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. But they'll, 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 the labels will be back, you know, in, in, but not for five years, you know. So, um, but they'll, you know, if the judges, I mean, probably there will be at least one uh, judge still around at that point. And, and I think, I think it must be said that the, the new chief judge, uh, Suzanne Barnett, right, um, who's the one that wrote the opinion, wrote the notice. Um, has probably had just about enough of this whole process. I mean, that was the definite takeaway I got from that um, was that, you know, she, she had kind of gotten to that sit down, you're done, you know, <laughs> stage, you know, with these guys, all of them, you know, frankly, I mean, I think that she's, I definitely got that feeling like, you know, and who knows what's going on in her mind, but it's certainly read like that you know, to me. Anyway, that that she was um, he was about done with the cutting them slack phase, you know. 
Thank you guys so much for tuning into this episode of the Artist Rights Watch. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can add us on Twitter at Artist Rights. We're on Facebook at Artist Rights Watch. And you can also find us on our website, artistrightswatch.com. We're available on all the streaming platforms. So wherever you are listening to this, please give us a five-star review and let us know your thoughts. I've been your host and producer, Nick Patel. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I'll catch you guys next time.